Lesson 13, Always We Begin Again. Our Life on Life curriculum is divided into two parts. Part 1, Gospel Foundations. These are the core living truths a disciple must come to know in the biblical sense as deep, intimate, and personal knowledge. You might know that to know in the Bible is sometimes equated with sexual intimacy. God wants us to know him, not generically, but deeply and personally, so that we might have intimate fellowship with him. Indeed, this is Jesus' own definition of eternal life. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Part two, gospel formation, ask a question we all ask from one time or another. How do I move these truths from my head into my heart? There's a gap for us between what we profess to believe and how we live. Recognizing this gap is painful, but it's a part of growing self-awareness. How do I close this gap? Or put another way, how do people change? Lessons 12 and 13 go together. If you recall, the big idea of Lesson 12 is that while the Bible describes growth in a variety of ways, and while there is no simple formula or easy step, a foundational truth to which we must always return is the goodness of God. Our hearts must become convinced not just that God exists, and not just that God is good in the abstract, but that God is good to me in particular. We must become assured not just that God is love, but be able to say, He loved me and gave Himself for me. One of the most amazing verses in the Bible is Psalm 51, verse 1. The famous psalm David wrote after he'd committed murder and adultery. After he'd made the biggest mistake of his life, David wrote, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. The confidence and assurance that God's love for him remained loyal, steadfast, in spite of David's own grievous sin, only because of God's great mercy. This is the soil of biblical faith. One of the most famous definitions of faith in history was from the reformer John Calvin who wrote, We shall possess a right definition of faith if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. He's saying faith is confidence in God's benevolence, that is, his kind good-heartedness toward you in particular. As David wrote in Psalm 56, This I know, you hear that word? This I know that God is for me. He knew deeply and intimately. He was able to say, This I know God is for me. That means that everything that comes into your life, even heartache or disappointment, you know has been filtered through God's wise and loving hands. Faith says with the old hymn writer John Newton, everything is necessary God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. That's faith. Do you have this faith? The life of faith and growing in faith, we said last week, always goes back to being rooted and grounded in the measureless love of God for us. We saw last week, this is no small request, that in Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul prays we might have strength to comprehend, and he uses that word again, to know 
the love of Christ, which he says surpasses knowledge. Again, the surprise of that prayer is he's writing to Christians, to men and women who presumably already know the love of God. But what is he praying for? A deeper, more experiential knowledge that we might know what we already know, the greatness of God's love for us. He's telling us we never get beyond the love of God, only deeper into it. And he uses this uh, metaphor from the world of gardening, rooted and grounded. Paul says, here is the soil of faith. God is good to me. God is for me. And I can always have confidence in God's good character. Now, you might ask in this world, how could that be, given who I am, a sinner, and given what I can see in my life, heartache and disappointment? Our confidence in God's goodness toward us is not rooted, it's not rooted in our circumstances, which are often beyond our control, nor is our confidence rooted in our own hearts, which are fickle and we know can sometimes be wicked. My confidence in God's goodness towards me is rooted in God's unchanging heart, which he showed us in Jesus Christ. It's because of Jesus and only because of Jesus that we can have the Bible calls boldness and access with confidence. Where does our confidence come from? The Bible answers, quote, only through faith in Christ. That's Ephesians 3.12. Here's a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. And we need an anchor like a ship does because of the winds and waves, the storms of life that are sure to come. They threaten to blow us off course and even shipwreck our, our lives. We get disoriented, our confidence flags. And not because of the painful awareness of our ongoing, not least because of the painful awareness of our ongoing indwelling sin. How can I act like that and I call myself a Christian? We are accused by the devil we are accused by the voices of others, and we are even accused by our own hearts. 1 John 3.20 We need an anchor to remind us, as one of the old Puritans put it, your heart is not the compass Christ saileth by. Our feelings will come and go. Our faith will rise and fall like the tides of the ocean. But God's love for you is not determined by you. God's love for us is not diminished by our disobedience, nor is it improved by our good deeds. Children are taught the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. But only a mature saint has learned the truth of a later verse in that little song. Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I should. Jesus loves me when I'm bad, though it makes him very sad. Every promise in the Bible, every promise the Bible makes about God is true for you no matter what you've done or failed to do or what you're facing. That is, the eyes of faith can take any promise of the Bible and personalize it. That's one of the best ways to nourish your faith in seasons of darkness. Read through a psalm and personalize the promise. Make it your own. Take Psalm 56, which we referred to earlier, to be able to say of yourself what David says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And God I trust, I shall not be afraid. For this I know, God is for me. I've spent half of Lesson 13 essentially going over Lesson 12 because the big idea of Lesson 13 is that we always have to go back to Lesson 12. We always, again and again, day after day, morning after morning, have to go back 
to the steadfast love of God for us. We never arrive. One of the early church fathers put it, always we begin again. That's the paradox of growth. We advance only to the degree that we realize that in the most important ways, we, we never get out of kindergarten. When it comes to knowing the gospel, we're always in a remedial course. That turns out to be one of the hardest things about the Christian life, the sheer repetitiveness of it. It's not an accident that the predominant metaphor in the Bible for our life with God is not running or flying, but walking. Walking is slow. Walking is repetitive. You can't get where you want to go in a hurry. And it's the same with growth in Christ. Growing in grace and knowledge or being transformed is a long, slow journey of going deeper and deeper into where we began. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Going back to the goodness of God and the love of God is, the, is not the only way we grow, as we'll see over unit two, but always we go back to this soil being rooted and grounded in God's goodness and love. That's step one of the Christian life. Look at Christ. Step two of the Christian life, see step one, one old pastor put it. Learn much of the Lord Jesus, another pastor put it. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. For every, let me say that again, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief of sinners. Live much, he writes, in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Isn't that beautiful? When taken by itself, that quote seems to suggest that this old pastor was content to turn a blind eye to his own sins and frailties. But keep reading. He goes on to say, let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that's in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. He's saying the beauty of Christ is not only the brilliant contrast to the darkness of our own hearts, but also the beauty of Christ is the remedy to dealing with the sin we find there, that we battle indwelling sin by filling our hearts by the, with the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that's in Him, that Christ is better that we don't have to run from the truth about ourselves or try and hide it or pretty ourselves up, that it's precisely our messiness that makes Christ's love for us so surprising and even shocking and transforming. Another old Puritan put it this way, but I am a great sinner, you say. I will no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, you say. I will in no way cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, you say. I will in no way cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, you say. I will in no way cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. 
but I have no good thing to bring with me, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. We grow in Christ as we go deeper into, rather than ever moving beyond, the verdict of acquittal that got us into Christ in the first place. The gospel is not a gateway into the Christian life. The gospel is the pathway. If you want to put it in slightly more theological and biblical terms, sanctification, that's the Bible's term for our lifelong growth in grace and knowledge. Uh, Justification, that's a once and for all events, a declaration that all of our past sins, past, present, and future, that all of our sins have been forgiven in Christ and we've now been covered, fully clothed in Christ's righteousness. That was lesson five. The point here is justification is one time, sanctification is ongoing and lifelong. One of the main ways we grow in sanctification is by constantly returning to our justification, going deeper and deeper into the love of Jesus that saved us on the first day of our Christian lives. Because it's human nature to think that we grow by doing, by performing, by obeying the law. But it was Martin Luther's great insight that this is the default mode of the human heart and that we always fall back into thinking we need to earn God's love by our doing, by our obedience, by following God's law. This is the religious impulse. But God's law, His commands, these are the steering wheel, not the engine to the Christian life. God's law is good, the Bible says, and instructive. But the problem with the law is that it is powerless to change us. Part of our sinful nature is we constantly forget this. We constantly fall back into the lie that we can change ourselves or others by insisting upon the law, insisting upon what we should do or punish or by punishment or coercing. In parenting, for example, that might produce obedient, well-mannered children to discipline with them with the law, but it leaves the heart untouched. Incidentally, have you ever wondered that many Christian parents just want to raise good little Pharisees who look good and do good, but maybe not actual Christians who will love Jesus and follow him at great risk or personal cost? But that's another, that's another lesson. We need to constantly bring our hearts and the hearts of those we love back to the verdict of the gospel. The old Nike spirituality, just do it. This does not work. Because, and the science proves this, our willpower turns out to be remarkably puny. Only the gospel changes us because it tells us what was true of us before we ever thought about changing. When it comes to change, we think that our lever is resolve. Want to. And there's a place for that, for striving and running and making every effort. But those exhortations are only effective when they fall upon hearts that have already received and rested in the settled verdict of God's acceptance of us. You see how different the gospel is? The world says, change, become someone new and different from who you are. But the gospel is a very different message. It says, become who you are who God has already declared you to be in Christ. You are safe. You're secure. Now become who you are. You see, you're not operating at a deficit to fill up what's missing or lacking. You're moving out into the world from a position of fullness, acceptance, confidence, and security. 
God has declared you holy. That's justification. Now become holy. That's sanctification. Become who you already are in Christ. Critics object, why would I do that? Haven't you removed all the motivation to be holy if you take out the fear of God's punishment? Well, if fear of punishment was motivating you, then you weren't obeying God for God's sake, were you? You were obeying Him for your sake, to try and stave off His judgment or garner His approval. No, the only secure foundation for change is the gospel, is to press on and take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already taken hold of you. That's Philippians 3.12. This dynamic we're talking about, Lesson 13, is vital, and yet so few Christians understand it. That's why we're spending two lessons on it. Here's how one great historian, church historian Richard Lovelace, put it. He writes, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. They have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day existence, they rely on their, here's the key word, they rely on their sanctification for justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. If you missed that, you might want to go back and look at that quote in the podcast transcript, because here's how Lovelace continues. Few know enough to start each day, you hear that? Start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Martin Luther's platform. You are accepted. Looking outward in faith, and claiming the holy, alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance, relaxing in that quality of trust, which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. Much that we have interpreted as a defect of sanctification in church people is really an outgrowth of their loss of bearing with respect to their justification. And he concludes, Christians who are no longer sure God loves them and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure people. Their insecurity shows itself in their pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and a defensive criticism of others. Now that's a mouthful, but if you just studied this quote, you'd have the whole point of Lesson 13. Loveless is drawing on this innate tendency we all have to want to base our justification, our standing with God, on our sanctification. That is, to base our standing with God on how we're performing or feeling that day. His point is a vital dynamic in our growing in Christ is always going back to this anchor, our justification. The writer Dane Ortland gathers together several quotes from church history to understand that we move forward in the Christian life by not moving past the truth that forgave us in the first place. Here are some gems. This is from Thomas Chalmers. The freer the gospel, the more sanctifying the gospel, the more it is received as a doctrine of grace, and the more it will be felt as a doctrine of godliness. Or this is from James Stewart. It is God's justifying verdict which itself sanctifies. 
It is precisely because God waits for no guarantee but pardons us out and out that His forgiveness changes us. Or this is from a famous uh, theologian named Herman Bavink. Real faith is a practical knowledge of the grace that God has revealed in Christ, a heartfelt trust that He has forgiven all of our sins and accepted us as His children. For that reason, faith is not only needed at the beginning, but it must also accompany the Christian throughout one's life and play a permanent and irreplaceable role in growing in Christ. And here's one more from a writer named G.C. Burkauer. The heart of sanctification is the life which feeds on justification. Now, those quotes are mouthfuls, and those may be obscure names. But the most important authority are not these uh, old theologian, but the voices of Scripture. If you remember back in Lesson 5, where we looked at justification, we saw it wasn't just an ancient word that came up in Paul's dealings in Galatia, but justification is a perpetual and universal need that we all have. How can I get somebody to love me and accept me, given who I am, given all the facts? The gospel's unique answer is that our acceptance is found wholly outside of us in Christ. The world says work for approval. The gospel says work from approval. Only one word, it makes a world of difference. Our hearts say work for salvation. The gospel says no, work out your salvation. You see, justification frees us from the fear that comes from meeting the approval of others and worrying that we won't be able to get that approval. When our insecure hearts fall back into needing the approval of others, it erodes the freedom from fear that the gospel gave us in the first place. Think how foolish we are, so foolish, that though we've been set free and forgiven, though we've been acquitted, we are hell-bent on returning to our prison of fear our prison of needing human approval, our prison of fearing disapproval, the prison of trying to earn our own acquittal. Don't beat yourself up for being foolish, though. We all do this. That's why we always have to begin again, each day, with the gospel, God's once and for all verdict secured by the blood of Christ. As we saw in our lesson on idolatry, that's how we defeat our ongoing battle with our idols, by reminding ourselves, Jesus is better. Our, con- our counterfeit gods, our idols, they don't love us. They won't set us free. They will only enslave and disappoint us, even if we manage to get our hands on them. Only the gospel sets us free from fear. Only the gospel moves us from fear to freedom. Last week, we closed with the story of C.S. Lewis coming to know the gospel late in life in his 50s. Well, here's another story of another 20th century faith leader, Francis Schaeffer. Late in his ministry, he began to be troubled that among many of those who held the orthodox position, he said, one saw little reality in the things that the Bible so clearly says should be the result of Christianity. If I can paraphrase, He's saying, sooner or later, all of us ask, why don't more Christians look like Christians? And here was Schaefer's conclusion. Quote, Gradually I saw that the problem was that with all the teaching I had received after I had become a Christian, 
I heard very little about what the Bible says about the meaning of the finished work of Christ for our present life. But Schaefer writes, gradually the sun came out. He confessed that in his own life his faith had grown stale and he found himself stuck. His joy was sapped. What re reinvigorated his joy was rediscovering the gospel. He'd later write, I became a Christian once and for all on the basis of the finished work of Christ through faith. That is justification. But the Christian life, sanctification, operates on the same basis, moment by moment. And it's the same for us. We never graduate from the gospel. We only go deeper and deeper into the love of God in Jesus Christ. That means you'll wake up tomorrow with one urgent need above all others. In the famous words of George Mueller, I saw more clearly than ever that the first and great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. Have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord or how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man may be nourished. Always we begin again. Now you might ask, well, how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, that is the next lesson. See you next week.